This is episode 17 with Karina Terra. You love it. You are great at it. The world needs it. You are paid for it. In this program, we go deep to get answers to essential questions and learn how to develop key skills to live a life that moves you. This is the Beyond the Surface podcast. My special guest is one of Seattle's favorite yoga teachers and one of my friends, the wonderful Karina Terra. She has been practicing yoga since she was 13 and has studied with some of the world's most respected yoga experts. She moved from Brazil to the U.S. on her late 20s and owned and managed a yoga studio for 10 years. Today, she continues to spread her passion for yoga by holding teacher training programs and classes at select yoga studios in the Seattle area. In this episode, we'll be talking about yoga, Karina's approach to yoga and meditation, and how you can use these to bring steadiness, peace, compassion, and self-acceptance to your life. Karina, thank you for being here. How are you? Oh, I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's exciting. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, it's a privilege. Uh, you just told me before we got started that this is your first podcast. So yes. <laughs> I'm honored. Uh, for those who don't know you or cannot see you as they're listening to this, uh, one of the reasons that I really wanted to interview you is because I kind of like to talk to people who do what they preach. And I think uh, one of the biggest things that I wanted to acknowledge you for is for the energy that you project, literally. Like, there's a lot of people who talk the talk, but I can actually see the results from everything you preach, whether it's from an article or from a conversation with you. It, it projects through your energy. So, oh, thank you. I definitely love that about you. Um, to get things started, uh, I wanted to uh, kind of go back to Brazil, where you were born. Um, you started practicing yoga when you were 13. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a serious practice, obviously. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. But it was very interesting because at some point, I don't know how it started because I was too young to remember, but, you know, two of my aunts and my father actually mm -hmm. decided to take yoga classes with this yoga teacher who was very serious, you know, about it. And it was very traditional hatha yoga. Mm -hmm. And, at those, you know, in those days we had no yoga mats, nothing. It was just, you know, you went in this room with candlelight and incense and mm -hmm. there was chanting but we also did yoga poses and all of that mm -hmm. and i loved it i loved i loved the chants and uh loved the, the meditation and all that and you know it was cool to do it with my dad and cool to do it with my aunts and i think my sister went a few times and some of my cousins so it was like a family thing mm. and so that's how we got started and it was just yoga you know we, there were no styles or anything like that it was just called yoga <laughs> Interesting. So you guys just got started uh, basically because most of the family was doing it. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Now, uh, despite that you were, you know, doing yoga, what led you to kind of switch from doing that, you know, yoga and then deciding to spend 11 years dancing ballet? And when you were doing that, were you doing yoga concurrently or were you completely focused on literally mastering ballet? I actually started dancing ballet before I even knew what yoga was. So that was, you know, it was like young like was six or something like that mm -hmm. um and i was very serious about it very passionate about it and i danced you know until i was a teenager mm -hmm. and the only reason i stopped was because i wanted to go to college and i had to choose either to have this full career in ballet or go to college but i'm a very multi-dimensional being and i like different things and i loved ballet but i didn't want to just do ballet uh yoga was like in the middle You know, that it happened mm. concurrent with ballet. You went to college to study yoga therapy. I actually went to college to study physics, and I oh. have a degree in physics. Oh, wow. Yes, but I, while I was there, um, we had PE lessons, and I was never really, because of the ballet background, uh -huh. I was more of a the dancey, moving my body kind, rather than running after a ball <laughs> kind. Mm -hmm. And so you could choose yoga. And then it was one of the choices for PE. And so when I did that, I really fell in love with it. And then mm. I decided to study yoga therapy. And that's how I also studied yoga therapy while I was in college. But I do have a physics degree. <laughs> Interesting. Um, what's your definition of yoga? 
Well, yoga is many things, and that's why it's so hard to define. Uh-huh. Um, but it's really a, a way of life. It's a, it's both a science and a philosophy that teaches you to live a happy, healthy life um, through different sorts of practices. And so it's not just the yoga poses, mm-hmm. but it's really the union of all of, you know, the people say the cliche is, oh, yoga's union, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which it is to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, mind, body, spirit, and all of those things working together in harmony. Oh, uh, beautiful. You know, and but if you, the classical, you know, Patanjali, mm-hmm. you know, definition in the Yoga Sutras is that yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind, you know, all of the rumination. And that's <laughs> when every, that's when people start sounding like Deepak Chopra. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then more like Kisan, where I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. So it's many things. It's hard to just say one thing. <laughs> now, uh, my wife is one of your students, and she told me that you, I think, went to India at some point. Yes. Uh, well, you were there, and you had time to ex- uh, get exposed to I mean, yoga in India. Like, what would you say yoga, how does yoga in the West compare to yoga in India, where I feel it came from. Yeah. Well, it's very interesting because um, yoga in India was very different before. It wasn't about asana at all. And asana means... Uh, poses. Yeah, poses. The, the poses. Yeah, the physical practice, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it wasn't about the poses at, um, at all. Um, you know, there were a few poses, but it was always to prepare for meditation, and yoga was always in this context of meditation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, only you know later, like in the 1900s, that there was this revival where the poses that, as we know them in the West today, were um, in a way created. You know? Oh, I didn't <laughs> yes. know that. Yes. So they, uh, Krishnamacharya, for example, was you know great. Uh, is considered the father of Vinyasa yoga. Um, created, you know introduced some salutations and created all of these sequences based on Western gymnastics um, mm. because it was the time of the British invasion. And so they wanted to the, the Indian people to be strong and to have like a, a be, be proud of, you know, their nationality and all of that. Mm-hmm. So that was all done like that. And then they also brought yoga to the West. And that's how this whole yoga, the way we see it today, started. But it wasn't until like the 1900s or something. But the, but the poses, yoga already had poses where it originated, yeah, right? Very, um, yeah, a few, not a handful. Really. Is, is there a um, origin of like, is there a, what's the, what's, What's the idea behind these poses? And the reason I'm asking this is, I think I took uh, uh, some course by a monk. Mm-hmm. He taught me this series of poses. Mm-hmm. It's not yoga. It's more for uh, kind of stretching. He would be insulted if I said that. <laughs> <laughs> a Junjin La or something like that. But he was saying that the poses come from poses from the animals or mimicking yes. the animals. I mean, is there something like that with yoga or is, did somebody just randomly came up with these poses? How did the, the, the original poses came to be? Okay. Is there a science behind you it? You know, there's not just Indian yoga. So, you know, this monk that told you that it was yoga, it, it was yoga because there's there could be, there's Taoist yoga, mm. there's Tibetan yoga. There are different kinds oh. of yoga. So it's not just what we know and, you know, identified with is the Indian yoga, right? Um, and there were poses. First of all, there were poses for seated meditation. So there are a few different types of seated mm-hmm. poses. And then the, the lotus position. Right? Exactly. And and then there were other poses that came out of people meditating spontaneously. They were compelled to move their bodies in those positions. So the movement, the spontaneous movement, and the poses came first, and then they named them, mm-hmm. or based on whatever was going on. So that's, I think, what most people think that happened. So that they were created organically as a spontaneous result, you know, consequence of what they were receiving while they're on meditation. Experiencing. Experiencing, yes. So kind of like that. And then over time, then maybe they changed some things more. But they didn't really care so much about the healthy aspects like we do today. It was mm-hmm. more to connect to your inner self, to your true essence and all of that. And so mm-hmm. whatever poses helped you to do that. Um, and, and the thousands of poses that we have today they didn't come until much much later Mm -hmm. um but yeah there were a few poses like in the 
uh, Hatha Yoga Pradipika, which was uh, one of the first books about yoga. Mm-hmm. I don't know how, I, I can't recall how many poses, but, you know, there weren't more than 20 poses, you know? Now, uh, what was the purpose of creating all these extra poses later on? What, what, what do you think? What was the, the intention? Later behind? on, meaning recently? Yeah. With, with Krishnamachari and all of those with people? With the Western yoga revolution, I guess. It, it was really to make the Indian people feel stronger physically mm-hmm. and emotionally and everything else to kind of okay. stand up for, for the British, you know, the Got British it. occupation. And then also for health, because at that point, you know, the frail people wanted to be stronger and healthier. And so then that's the whole healthy thing, you know. So that's interesting. They're saying um, a lot of the practices... Because you know this, you were. Uh, it reminded me of capoeira, right? Capoeira mm-hmm. was uh, to defend themselves from somebody, yeah. trick them into thinking that they're dancing, yeah. but in reality they were practicing martial arts. Yeah. Uh, so it looks like there's a connection there between capoeira and yoga as a mean to strengthen people's spirits and yes. in times of oppression. I guess. Yeah. No. For, yeah. That's that's how it was. And then to answer your question, really, because I had to kind of give you this whole detour. Yes. Um, so yoga in India is very different, though, because there's still the component, you know, the spiritual, very strong mm-hmm. spiritual component. Not that there isn't a spiritual component in, in the West, but a lot of that was, you know, taken away so because of the, the Christian base. Mm-hmm. And so when they brought yoga to the to the West, it was mostly the physical stuff. There was some meditation, but a lot of things were left out. And now I think there's a revival of like, let's really practice yoga the way it's intended and so more and more people are really turning into mm-hmm. the spiritual side of it now. It, well, it's still very commercialized. There's that too. But but there there are pockets of like people who are really practicing yoga as it's meant to be. What right. are uh, the biggest misconceptions people have about yoga here? Well, one of them is the obviously that it's just for exercise. <laughs> That's the biggest uh, one. That's the biggest one. And not that it's bad to do it just for exercise. If that's what you want to do, that's fine because it is good exercise. Um, but we, we, in our lives now, we sit every day, we drive everywhere. We don't really use our bodies the way we were meant to. And so it's good to do a lot of the poses of the asana and just do the physical. But only that is on yoga. For those who only see yoga as an exercise, what do you think uh, is attractive about it? Oh, it makes you feel good. <laughs> and right. it makes you look good too, right? So right. there's, I think that's why people are attracted to that. Uh, but there's misconception about yoga being a religion. You know, that's why they don't want to do the spiritual thing or, you know, or practicing Hinduism, which, yeah, they all come from the same culture, but it doesn't mean that it's the same thing. So, What uh, are the physical, mental, and spiritual benefits of yoga? Okay. Well, physical are the obvious, you know, good for your health, you know, soothes your nervous system mm-hmm. uh, and really helps you to turn off the the fight or flight, you know, mm. the, the sympathetic nervous system and turns on the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the relaxation one. Mm-hmm. So very good in stressful times. Um, mentally, again, going back to stress, mental stress, mm-hmm. it's stored in the body, so they're connected. But mentally, it helps you to develop a, a calmer, quieter mind and a mind really that clings to nothing because we're all over the place. There's just so much stimulation mm-hmm. nowadays that it's hard to focus your mind. It's hard to really be in a position where ah, I can just be. We're always doing, doing, doing. Mm-hmm. And our minds are going a million miles an hour and the body can't keep up with that. So it helps you to develop a single-pointed mind mm-hmm. and it de- and helps you to develop non-attachment so it's like ah oh, it's very freeing right um spiritually speaking there's so much it's, it's yoga is about knowing yourself knowing who you are because when you steal your mind you actually get a glimpse of your true self and so you can connect to who and what you really are and why you're here hmm so it brings you purpose in life and self-realization. What does true self mean to you? True self is the, the being that you are 
when you peel off all the layers of being a son or a daughter, a mother or father, or a teacher, or um, a, a, a doctor, or whatever your profession is, whatever your roles that you play, because we all have many roles. But when you, all of those roles, mm-hmm. you know, like peeling an onion, what's, you know, what's left when you strip all of that off? Mm-hmm. That's who you really are, your essence, not who you, the image that you have of yourself, not the image that other people have of yourself, not the expectations of you acting a certain way, but who are you really? Mm-hmm. All right. Now, to, to put it into to context, you've been doing yoga for many years now. Mm-hmm. Have you uh, experienced or achieved finding your true self through the practice? It's a constant practice, mm-hmm. and I connect to it every day. Mm. Yeah, so that's part of my meditation is to really get to a point where I can ask my true self questions because when you're in that position where everything else you know, it fades away and you're with yourself. Mm-hmm. If you ask questions, your true self will answer. Interesting. Yes. What are some examples of true self questions? Maybe like one. Oh, okay. Uh, maybe, you know, you, you, you're not sure about something you want to do in life. Mm-hmm. And, but you think, you know, Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I want to. I want. I want to study this, and mm. and but is it really because you want to? Is it because it's uh, popular? Is it because it will give you money? Is it because your parents expect you to? Is it you know, or is it what you really, really want? Mm. And so only your true self can answer that because we have all of these things, all of the expectations. Uh, we want to please other people, mm. you know. Even when we do it unconsciously you think you want or like something but it's just because you're trying to please your parents for example it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. no I th- and i think we were we, before we started the podcast we were commenting on a previous interview about with a uh, life coach about finding mm-hmm. your purpose right yeah. and i feel like in one way finding your true self could be also explained and correct me if i'm wrong as having an intimate conversation with yourself yes for sure to find clarity to find clarity yes now, uh, meditation is a big part of yoga. Yes. And it's, it almost seems like it's, a, it's an element. It is an element. Oh, yeah. It's part- How do people or uh, yogis meditate versus the rest? Uh, not the rest, but versus the typical lotus position just sitting. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you, do, you, do you guys meditate as you're going through the poses? You do meditate all the time. What is your understanding of meditation? Well, ideally, the goal is to be in meditation all the time, but you know we're we're not capable of that yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, when you, it's just really being in the present moment. That's really what you're trying to do. While so, you're moving or not? Yeah, and and so traditionally we sit in meditation and you close your eyes and you draw your attention inward and you mm-hmm. notice what's happening. You know, you you um, observe your thoughts without identifying with them or whatever comes up. Yeah, and. And until you eventually become one with the object of your meditation. Mm-hmm. But you can be doing that while you're in a yoga pose. You can be doing that anywhere. And so, you know, even asana can be meditative. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, washing dishes can be meditative. Um, Interesting. Yes. So, but if it, there is all this, basically it's a bit about being present, but uh, is there a best way to meditate? It's the best way that works for you hmm. because everybody's different and there are different techniques. You can do guided meditations if you have a hard mm-hmm. time sitting on your own. Uh, you can um, uh, use different techniques, visualization, mantra meditation, where, where you repeat a mantra or a sound, mm-hmm. a seed sound many times because it helps you to focus. Some people count, you mm-hmm. know, and so there are so many techniques and usually the techniques in meditation they're they're like the scaffolding when you're going to build something. So at first, you know, you need the scaffolding so things don't fall apart. Mm-hmm. But then once the building, the found, you know, foundation solid and you, you build the whole thing, then you don't need the scaffolding anymore. Mm-hmm. And so all of the techniques, they're great. And until the moment when you just sit and you don't need them. But 
what can you uh, remind me what was the language of mantras what's the typical language of mantras oh sanskrit sanskrit yes uh, is is sanskrit better than spanish or english when it comes to mantras because you know i i did experience uh uh meditate i got a meditation with deepak chopra and you know he's asking you to do a sanskrit mantra that mm -hmm. in my head i'm thinking okay i'm just saying random things is there a reason to do a mantra in, san in sanskrit instead yes. of kind of like something like what tony robbins for example says uh which i'm a big fan of him says every day in every way i'm feeling mm -hmm. stronger and stronger yes as you're like running or something right uh -huh. There's, there's, uh, it's valid to use a word in English that has a strong impact on you. You mm. can do that, you know. So, for example, if you want to be more confident mm -hmm. and, you know, you're sitting and you just, you know, repeat the word mentally, mm -hmm. you know, confidence, confidence, and visualize every cell in your body really absorbing the energy of that word because mm -hmm. all words have energy. That mm -hmm. That's valid. But Sanskrit is more powerful because... Mm -hmm. Not only because it's an ancient language, but it's a perfect language. Mm. It was really created, and they they say that it was kind of like a download from from divinity, right? They, uh, it's it's a, a, the alphabet has every possible sound that the the human vocal apparatus oh, can wow. produce, mm. and and so the words have carry a certain energy and so names of poses for example even not just talking about mantra but even names of poses in sanskrit carry the energy of the pose so just by saying the name of the pose correctly will connect you to the energy of that pose even without doing it you receive some of the benefits mm -hmm. and um as far as the mantras they carry that energy of what they mean right um And, you know, to go beyond in Tantra, mantras, you know, are sounds that they believe are alive, you know, just like you have light and everything in the universe is alive and, and, and conscious. Um, and so these sounds were sounds that while in meditation, the sages heard those sounds from higher realms and reproduced them with their own voice as best as they could. And... And carrying the energy, the healing energy, or the so some mantras can be very powerful, especially when they they were um, uh, received during meditation, during this practice, right? This is called sadhana is the Sanskrit name for practice, for spiritual practice. Are they powerful even if you're just saying them in your mind? Yeah, they're very. There's mantra meditation that you you in your mind you're just repeating the mantra, mm -hmm. repeating, repeating in your mind. You don't have to even use your voice, and it changes you. So the idea of using Sanskrit mantras is because they 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 carry energy throughout their body better mm -hmm. than any other language. Yeah, because they are specific for certain things. Mm -hmm. uh, just like Om is considered the sound of creation, the sound of the universe, mm -hmm. and when you Om, you feel good. Yeah. Right, and so yeah. um, it's very specific. Um, like it's formed, you know, Om, for example, just to keep on that everybody knows, right? Mm -hmm. Or most people know. I have the Ah sound, which is in the back. Mm -hmm. The U is in the middle, and the M is at the lips. So it uses mm -hmm. your whole mouth, right? Yeah. So it's like beginning, middle, and end, you know. Mm -hmm. So creation, sustaining the creation, and then destruction. So it's all about the cycle of life. So there's there are layers and layers of meaning hmm. just in this one word. I mean, I could talk for a long time about mm -hmm. it, and I could write three pages about just mm -hmm. what om means. Wow. And there are other seed sounds, like there's the bija mantras, which are like connected to your, your the chakras and the elements, the, you know, the, the five... Uh, natural elements mm -hmm. which are um, earth um, water oh, got it fire got air it. and space or ether mm -hmm. people call it ether but it's you know, mm -hmm. space mm -hmm. so and the next thing that i always wonder is why do people s sit in lotus position when they made it where did they what's the, the, the idea behind sitting cross-legged right i mean I know that most of the meditation, like I, I listen to the guy from Headspace, mm -hmm. right? He says, sit. If you need to sit, don't force yourself to get, right? But why even have that position? If 
many people can even do it. Well, back when well, they like started sitting in that position, it was they could do it. You oh, know, nowadays, it. yeah, nowadays most people can't because we already sit in chairs all day, which was like an invention that really isn't good for us. <laughs> But um, if if also it's actually bad to sit in, in lotus. If, if you're gonna sit in lotus and your knees and hurt your knees, then don't sit in lotus position. Mm -hmm. I I don't because I would hurt my knees. Okay. I do half lotus. I can do half of it. But why would you even even attempt to do half lotus when you can just sit and don't uh, even have to it, put any? There's in something your knees? about crossing your legs uh -huh. that helps you to lengthen the spine upward and to to mm. stack your. Hip. If you sit in other ways, like if you extend your legs out in front of you, you tend to slouch more. Oh, got it. And so, the idea is to keep your uh, spine, spine erect, straight. Yeah. Is to stay awake during the meditation. To stay awake and also because the energy flows better. Ooh, all right. It's an energetic thing as well as an alignment and and good for your. Oh, I health. love this. So, yes. so the, the whole idea of the the mantras, using the Sanskrit and sitting is is basically to become a master of energy flow. Oh my body. gosh, yeah, that's exactly the course I'm teaching next week. It's all oh, about that. So it's that is fantastic. Yeah, tantra is. Um, The science of energy management. It's about learning to harness energy, mm -hmm. right? To collect it and to then use it. So, you know, when you can direct your own energy where you need it, then you've mastered yourself, right? And you master it. True. Yeah. And so, in, in a way, yoga, because tantra and yoga are the same thing, especially the yoga that we practice in the West, it's very tantric, right? So, even though people don't know that and they have misconceptions about tantra, but... Uh, really, yoga and tantra to me they're synonymous, right? And tantra, tantra is, is a science and a philosophy. Got it. To to really help you to overcome your limitations and to mm -hmm. expand your consciousness, and basically it's a science of energy management because you do that through energy. Mm -hmm. You said in an interview that when you meditate, you know, meditation for you is a path to self discovery and self acceptance. Mm -hmm. How does How does meditation help someone with self-acceptance? Uh, for like they example, don't like themselves, right? That, that's mm -hmm. what I'm thinking about. Somebody don't they're uncomfortable with themselves. Yeah. So all of us, and it's that's part of the human condition, right? It's the duality. You have both a dark side and a light side, mm -hmm. and we tend to either ignore the dark side and just kind of shove it way in the back and we don't want to deal with it mm -hmm. and that causes suffering, right? And we only focus on the light side and, and trying to be perfect, which it's not possible. Uh, or we acknowledge that and then we, you know, just, oh, I'm not good enough and we have all of these thoughts and, mm -hmm. oh, I'm so bad, I did this and that. Mm -hmm. But when you're in meditation and thoughts come, you can observe them from a place where I'm not my thoughts And then if you have thoughts about yourself that are, you know, negative or that, no, you know, you idiot or you this or that, and you think to yourself that you're like that, then you can say, okay, that's part of me, but I love you anyway. And you can love that part of yourself and you can accept that and say, no, you're not, you know, even if you mess up, even if you make mistakes, I love you anyway. And so you learn to love yourself and then you can observe Yes, there's these there's this dark side of me, but there's also this other side, and you can really say, yeah, you know, I observe my patterns, my trigger points, the things that I do that I'm not very proud of. But if you start to observe them as something aside from you, mm -hmm. then you know you don't. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't have power on you. It loses its power. You know, what fascinates me about what you're saying is how all these things are connected. Like, uh, I think uh, when I talked to, in a previous interview, or maybe before that, the idea of developing a third eye to become the expectator of yourself. Mm -hmm. And so it's just incredible how all these things are connected and everybody has a different way of explaining it and a different way of achieving it. So you said in an interview that... Other than self-acceptance and finding your true self, there was one thing that caught my attention the most, which is which you said that I think through the practice of yoga and meditation, you also learn to accept and appreciate 
feelings that we consider negative, like sadness. How does one appreciate negative feelings? <laughs> well, let's take sadness. Or how do you appreciate yeah, negative sadness, feelings? Sadness, for example. You wouldn't experience happiness if you didn't experience sadness as well. So everything has two sides. Mm -hmm. And to experience sadness is also a part of being human. We're here to experience the entire spectrum mm -hmm. right, of emotions. And we can label it negative mm -hmm. and feel sorry for ourselves or miserable or we can like yes there's this feeling right now that i'm experiencing mm -hmm. but i'm not that feeling i the, the problem is when you identify with a feeling and you become sad because you are a sad person period mm -hmm. but being sad in the moment you know everything changes the whole the only constant thing in life is change mm -hmm. and so you're not going to be sad forever mm -hmm. so knowing that everything has its course and then you just make space for the sadness and you acknowledge that it's there hmm. but you have compassion at the same time and then it will transform and it will run its course and when it's time it will go away and it's a beautiful thing the problem that we label things is because we have all these habits and preconditioned you know, mind, mm -hmm. that programming that we get from the moment we were born that, oh, this is good or this is bad. So we're told that, oh, you have to be happy all the time and it's bad to be sad or it's bad to be angry even. Mm -hmm. Anger can be used, you know, as a catalyst for doing something good. It's just that instead of being reactive, you realize, oh, I'm angry. And you sit and you take a breath and it's like, why am I angry and what can I do with this? You know, so because that's energy. Emotions are energy. And so, Ooh. yeah. And so what do I do with this energy? And if I know how to, you know, harness, how to to direct the energy, I can direct it towards something positive. And again, going back to mastering the flow of energy. Yes. In this case, redirecting energy. Yes. In negative feelings. Yeah. So there's not, wow. there's no good or bad. Mm -hmm. There really is no evil in the world, according to Tantra or uh -huh. yoga. You know, evil is just a lack of awareness of the divine. Hmm. How would how would that philosophy explain terrorist groups? Well, the the people that are who feel that they, especially you know, kind of like what I'm going like ISIS, like they believe that they are everything they're doing is divine, right? It's part of the mm -hmm. holy war or something like that. I mean, I, I could be assuming a couple of things, but... Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's uh, their own, you know, in yoga, we have a term for that, you know, avidya or ignorance. And and avidya is really not just any type of ignorance. Avidya is lack of self-knowledge. Mm -hmm. So they don't really know who they are. Mm -hmm. They're doing something that they think is right because they didn't have... Take the time to get to know who they really are. Because once you know who you are, you mm -hmm. know that you're inherently pure hmm. and good. Even though we have these reactions in the world where we do things that are quote-unquote good or bad. But in the end, we are pure beings and we are just influenced by the environment and by our circumstances. And so once you lift this veil of illusion, of ignorance, then they would not be able to be terrorists. Would it be fair to say that the tan tan tantra, tantra yeah. philosophy explains uh, evil as there is no evil, it's just people are lost? Yes. Hmm. There is no evil, they are just suffering. People, you know, all of our ignorance, all of our, it's due to lack of self-knowledge. And so we suffer because we don't know who we are. We suffer uh, and that's all there is, you know. So having compassion, so, you know, Buddhists, philosophy is also very complementary to yoga and that's why a lot of yogis also practice buddhism because it's all about having compassion it doesn't mean you condone people's uh, attitudes mm -hmm. and actions mm -hmm. in this case terrorism mm -hmm. but to have compassion for them um, means you don't condone their actions but you know they're suffering and so you create this container this space to hold the suffering and to try to understand where they're coming from. Hmm. Um, and if you 
And it starts with you. So if you if you want to change the world, you have to change yourself and one person at a time. And it's contagious. And other people around you start to notice and then they start working on themselves. And that's how you end terrorism. It's not, yeah, you can't go and attack them and continue. You know, you can't fight terror with more terror. You can't find right. violence with more violence. So coming in, coming to that point where no matter how despicable you think actions of a person or a person's Mm -hmm. are that they're doing it out of ignorance and because they're suffering Mm -hmm. and so understanding that is the first step and then changing yourself and changing the world and then taking action with compassion Mm -hmm. without violence as gandhi did in india Mm -hmm. so in one way the idea that evil does not exist is the driver the driver of self-acceptance. Yes. Or the driver of accepting others. Also, yeah. Right? yeah, accepting others. Yeah, you accept yourself. And then once you understand your true nature, then you can see mm-hmm. the true nature of other people as well. Because you can see, look at them in the eye and see them for who they really are and not for all the, the baggage that they carry. Mm-hmm. You practiced yoga for 10 years before uh, taking teacher training. And... What would you say surprised you the most about becoming a yoga teacher? Well, I never really thought I was going to be a good teacher because I'm in in a way introverted. Mm-hmm. Even though it's funny because I've been a teacher of other things, mm-hmm. you know, and and uh, when I'm really comfortable with the sub- subject, I I am okay speaking to an audience. Mm-hmm. Um, but even so, yoga is very it's different. It can be intimidating at first. So I never thought I was going to be a teacher. I just had a passion for yoga and I did it for, you know, for myself, but I also wanted to share my passion with others. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of the teachers started to say, no, you're ready. You should go do a teacher training. Cause that's how it was back in my days. We didn't have, first we didn't have teacher trainings. Then, um, then the, f- a few teacher trainings started popping up, but it was not easy to get in, but they're like, oh, you're ready. And you kind of had like your teacher tell you that you're ready and then you can go. Mm-hmm. And so it was very surprising in that sense because I'm like I can't do this. Uh, I know I know all the poses. I know I know the you know the theory, but it's one thing to know and another thing to to actually stand in front of people and teach mm-hmm. uh, yoga. So, but but it happened and it was very organic and you know I just practiced what I preach, which is being compassionate. Enough mm-hmm. to allow myself to make lots of mistakes in the beginning mm-hmm. and to just laugh at them instead of judging myself and just to be honest about them and carry on until... That's enabling you to grow. Yeah, exactly. Now, you, you uh, practice with world-renowned yoga instructors, being a student of them. And world-renowned means most of it, uh, I think based on what I've done my research, is mostly uh, here in the U.S. Yeah. With incredible marketing. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because there is many yoga... There are many yeah. good teachers, but I think the ones that the ones that I've studied or tried to study with were the ones that actually knew more than I do, mm-hmm. not just the ones that are good at marketing themselves, mm-hmm. because there are some people that are really good at that, but they've, mm-hmm. you know. Well, you get more visibility. That doesn't yes. mean you can still go yeah. to some remote areas where there is some guy who lives yeah. like a complete minimalist, no technology, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're right. incredibly knowledgeable about yoga. Right? Exactly, so. exactly. So of the options that I had available that I was aware of, I mm-hmm. went and searched for the ones that I knew had been teaching for like 30 years or that I knew that they were there from the beginning, that mm-hmm. they were really passionate about it. They weren't just doing it mm-hmm. as a career, even though that's cool because that's my career but at the same time they were Mm -hmm. doing it because it was their calling Mm -hmm. and and so study with i've been fortunate to study with a lot of them in the beginning before things got too crazy with just too much and yeah Uh, what i think you already talked about this a little bit but what criteria do you have when other than trying to learn something that you think you don't know when you choose your next teacher? Because I know right now your uh, primary teachers are Sherry... Fredrickson. Fredrickson, yeah. thank you for that. <laughs> and Rod Stryker. Yeah. Uh, and extra, that's changed how... even because I, uh-huh. when I was in India, because you asked me about India, uh-huh. um, when I was in India, I was actually initiated. And uh-huh. that was 
this year in February, I was initiated in the lineage of the Himalayan masters. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not a master, but I was initiated mm-hmm. in that lineage. I'm just a beginner yeah. in, when it comes to that. Um, by Pandit Rajamani Tigunayat. Mm-hmm. And so he's the spiritual head of the Himalayan Institute. Mm-hmm. And so he's my, you know, he's my, t- and he's also Rod Strikers and Sherry's teacher. So mm. I was studying with, I mean, I'm still am studying with both Rod and, and Sherry, mm-hmm. but now I'm, I went to their teacher. Mm. So now I'm studying, I was initiated in the lineage, the lineage by their teacher, mm-hmm. you know. Now you're a teacher of teachers here in the region. Yeah. What, what does that look like to be studying with them? Because are they local? They're not no, local. No, they're not local. So what is that relationship like? That relationship, you know, when you get to a point where you've, you've already done teacher training, the mm-hmm. basic stuff, and you've been teaching for a long time, then, you know, they say when the teachers is re- when the student's ready, the teacher will come. And that's kind of how I found them, mm-hmm. you know, in doing workshops and then realizing that their teachings resonated with me and then wanting to study with them and mm-hmm. kind of getting there and, and communicating. So basically... For example, with Sherry, who's the one I talk to the most, you know, I email her. I just saw her in, in September. I went to the Himalayan Institute in, in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. and I, you know, studied with her. And then I went back and studied with her teacher, with her. So both of us were doing his course. So I, a, a few times a year, I go and see them in person. Mm, okay. So that it involves traveling for me. Mm-hmm. So that's a commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, they also tell me if they're in town, and and then but there's lots of emails and just really talking when I need, and they give me things to do. Like for example, uh, Pandiji, you know, their teacher just for short Pandiji. Otherwise, I have to say Pandit Rajmani Tigunayat mm-hmm. every time. Oh wow! <laughs> uh, but Pandiji, I just saw him in September. Mm-hmm. He gave me some new practices. So now I'm responsible for my own practice, for my own growth at mm-hmm. this point. So he gave me some more practices. And then when you know, I get to a certain level in the practice that, you know, I have to know personally, okay, now I need something else. What's next? Mm-hmm. Then I have to go after him and say, hey, this is where I am, you know, ask him questions. And then he, based on that, will give me the next step. Got it. So it's like a guide. It's like, yeah, like a guide, you know, like this one-on-one relationship Nice. where he's like, where, what can I do for you? It's based on what I, where I want to go. So it's not really like a formal program or anything. It's more of like an ongoing relationship. It's an ongoing relationship at this point. Yes. Uh, you said that right now you are focusing on teacher training and you're holding classes at select yoga studios at at this at this point i'm only teaching at one yoga studio in seattle because i'm really i've really you know narrowed it to this one location so i can be less time in traffic and more Mm -hmm. at a studio that allows me to teach the way that i want they they give me the flexibility they give me Mm -hmm. you know the resources and they're really good at that and also where the philosophy resonates with my philosophy so at this point, mm-hmm. I'm very selective because I want to teach at a studio where what they teach resonates with, with what I teach. Mm-hmm. Now that, this, that was the answer to my next question, which is um, how do you, what do you look for in the studio that you select to teach at? And you already covered most of it. But one part that I wanted to also ask you about is what about the venue? Do you have any requirements for what the venue should look like what the class should look like is um, there anything that you don't do not support i mean who knows there is just all these different well i i don't i don't like studios with the infrared heat because i think that infrared heat is for um to be used occasionally because it is a form of radiation so as a physicist i know that prolonged exposure isn't mm-hmm. good and also, as a teacher, if you're teaching in that heat every day, every day, you no, know, it, it has a cumulative effect of radiation that mm-hmm. even though it's mild and, and harmless, if you do it every once in a while, mm-hmm. if you had to teach three classes or be in that heat for three hours every day, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think that's good. So I wouldn't, I don't teach at studios like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, where I teach right now, it's Spirit Bar Yoga in West Seattle and one thing, they're clean. I like clean spaces. They also are very um, careful about building community. And so 
I like the fact that I know everyone. I know the students. Everybody takes care of the studio as if it's their own home. So it's a really beautiful place in, in, in terms of that. I mean, I don't, I don't care for fancy or anything. It's just clean, um, good you know, students that are open to the, the philosophy that we have to offer. So we attract the right kind of student. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's, it's a studio where I can teach more than just poses. I can teach all of the things we've been talking about. I can do trainings. And so any studio that would fit that bill would be, would be great. And so it's more that than like what the studio looks like per se, mm-hmm. other than just the, the basics, mm-hmm. you know, uh let's talk about teacher training okay uh last i think i read you accumulated close to over nine thousand hours that's almost over a year of <laughs> literally <laughs> teaching yoga every second <laughs> <laughs> which is incredible oh, that's over many years but yes <laughs> <laughs> yes over many years <laughs> but uh, uh, you know the idea that i have of a yoga teacher is just somebody who like gets in front tells people how to do the poses and kind of comes up with a routine until I see the, the mammoth of a program that you put together because my wife took your class. It's a 200-hour yoga teacher training program. And she showed me this binder. And I'm actually going to put a picture of the binder in the show notes for people to know, like, this is real, legit material. Like, it's not just random teachings. Uh, did you create this program from scratch? Yes, from scratch. Wow. Is, and is, is that like what every teacher has to go through that gets certified by the Yoga Alliance, 200 hour, 500 no, hours? No, you can, you can buy books that there are teaching books, you know, that, that kind of mm-hmm. have like standard. Like a template. A template. And so you could use someone else's book. License the content, basically. And, yeah. And, and so there are things like that. And there are books that you can buy even on Amazon that says teaching yoga and then kind of show you mm-hmm. like the basics still you still need a teacher to teach you how to actually teach a, a, a group class but but it has like the theory um and all of that and the names of the poses and the photos of poses so there are books like that but why are you going to use somebody else's way of teaching somebody else's methodology if you have your own and i have my own methodology at this point after teaching for so many years so mm-hmm. i developed my contact content from scratch that's crazy because, you know, here, in, in, in as far as my research in the U.S., the, the, the certification from the Yoga Alliance, they, I, f- I forgot what their 200-hour certificate mm-hmm. and these 500-hour teacher training certificates, do they provide you with any uh, teach, teaching, uh, uh, teacher training materials? Or not all of them, you know, not all, not all trainings are created equal. And so the, the rules from Yoga Alliance are very relaxed. Mm. I mean, you, you, you just need to have some, some, uh, certain number of credits per category that they say, mm-hmm. and then you provide like a high level syllabus to them, mm-hmm. but how you actually deliver content and all that, as long as you, as long as you cover those hours, mm-hmm. you know, they, mm-hmm they don't care or they don't have the manpower to actually um, mm-hmm. come and see if you're doing what you're saying you're doing. I see. So a lot of, you know, some trainings are really good and they provide materials. They, they, they write manuals or they use other manuals and some they don't. It's just, you never know. So it's really important when you're looking for a teacher training to, to do your homework and to see why are these people, how long have they been doing this? What, what are the ratings? You know, do people finish this training able to teach? Because not all teacher trainings do that. Mm-hmm. And so... So other than the group think idea that if people start going looking for a yoga studio and everybody has, oh, all our teachers have this nice symbol, right? So everybody starts saying, oh, I want this symbol. I want my teacher to have this symbol. But they don't really even know what that means. Are there any, other than the marketing purposes, are there any benefits from instructors who are certified by the yoga alliance unfortunately there are a lot of people want certificates from you know that are yoga alliance accepted mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. a lot of studios ask that i think it's just more because it's a standard got it uh and so for example for gyms now that offer yoga like you have yoga not just a yoga studio but everywhere mm-hmm. now and so these other places that they have no idea because they, they don't teach yoga themselves they just want to hire a yoga teacher mm-hmm. oh you have the certificate from yoga alliance and then that's how it became standard but the fact that your certificate is approved by yoga alliance 
unfortunately, it doesn't really mean much. Mm-hmm. And the only reason why we do that, you know, through Yoga Alliance is because it's become the standard. Yeah. But I, to me, that's not, that doesn't represent, you know, mm-hmm. the quality. It doesn't say what the quality of the, the training is. So more important than that, you know, is to really pick one. Yes, Yoga Alliance just because it's, no, I What's get it. expected, but but yeah. Now this uh, two hundred hour program binder that I'm going to put in the show notes. How long did it take you to put together? That particular manual took me maybe six to eight months to put together. Wow! How did you go about structuring the whole thing? Do you had any? Because uh, you know, do you had any expertise, any previous experiences that? Uh, guided you to learning how to put something so structured? Well, how did you learn? Because I mean, I feel like this is almost like a separate uh, skill set that you've developed mm-hmm. other than understanding yoga. I mean, you're putting a program. There's people who specialize on. Yeah, I, I've, I've always worked with the written wor- the mm-hmm. word. And so I've, like, as I said, I've, I've worked in translation. I even taught a class at the Bellevue College, you know, co- you know, in the translation and mm-hmm. Uh, interpretation program so i'm kind of i'm good with writing for the Mm -hmm. most part but at the same time i'm very i've always been very organized Mm -hmm. and i know what it takes to learn to teach yoga and i've participated in many trainings to kind of know to compare them all and see what works what doesn't work Mm. and so then i put a program first like a high level list of how do i want people to learn this you know all of this content Mm -hmm. what makes sense you know, how to integrate them. And so based on that, I came up with a plan with an outline. Mm-hmm. And then after I had that, then I developed the content and the whole manual came together. Mm-hmm. And so it's really, it was really more direct experience and trial and error than anything. Nice. We're getting uh, close to wrapping up and I have a couple of two sections that I wanted to go really quick uh, with like brief answers. Um you said that you own and manage a studio in Isuqua for 10 years. Yes. Terra Yoga. And I had a couple of questions about that. Is how did you start the business? Well, I really pretty much landed. I mean, I never had a, uh, any desire to own a yoga studio. Mm-hmm. But um, I just so ended up having the studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and long story to get there. But anyway, I, I in a way had the studio... And it was, uh, I ended up having to manage it and do everything. Mm-hmm. And so I learned everything as I went. I had no no um, experience managing a studio. So you never owned a business before that never one? Never owned a business. I worked at Microsoft for 10 years before that, right? So, but I mean, I had some business skills just from working at Microsoft, but not running my own business. How and long did it take you be, uh, between thinking you wanted to have a yoga studio to actually having a yoga studio? It actually happened very quickly, even before. <laughs> so, um, again, at the time I was married, mm-hmm. my husband wanted to buy the studio because he was teaching yoga. I was just learning to teach yoga. Oh, got it. And so that's how it happened. So I, we pretty much, I worked at Microsoft, so I got the yoga studio, mm. um, which somebody was selling. So it existed, changed the name, got changed it. the style, everything else. And he started doing it, and then he realized it wasn't what he wanted. Hmm. And so, but I was so then I was stuck with it, and hmm. so I had to learn like very fast and like you know do what I do, which is as a scientist is like okay, something you don't know, how do you learn? And mm-hmm. so do research and yeah. And there you said there are some things that you didn't want, uh, and your husband didn't want. Uh, what would you say were the biggest challenges related to that? For for him. For for both of you, about the business, what were the unexpected? things about this business that you guys did not like and they were you found the most challenging well i think for him was because he thought oh it's just you own a studio and you just go and you teach yeah. and so that was his thing because mm-hmm. it, you know he wanted to do it and i was still working at microsoft mm-hmm. um and then i realized well there's more to it and he is not going to do it so i have to jump in mm-hmm. and so I actually did a pretty good job especially after i mean i i once i decide that i'm going to do something mm-hmm. And I'm very stubborn and I really, I'm very organized and, and methodical and I can do it mm-hmm. no matter what it is. And so I did really well mm-hmm. managing the studio. But mm-hmm. at the same time, 
I really just wanted to teach. And that was my thing. I just wanted to teach. And so after 10 years, I was like, oh, you know, I really need to focus on doing what I really do best. And what I love to do is to train teachers mm -hmm. and to spread the word about yoga. And then that's, that's basically when you're realizing your energy was getting diluted into all these other business activities. Exactly. And you closed the business. And what would you say was the biggest lesson learned from that experience? Of closing the business or owning the business? Owning and closing the business. I mean, that part of your life. It's 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 really hard work. It's beautiful if you if you love doing all of it. And it was amazing, all the people that helped me and um, the students were amazing. Um, so I think that it was just learning that you can do anything, even if it's not something that you know how to do at first. If you if you if you have to do something, you know, trusting mm -hmm. that you can do that you're you're good enough, that you're smart enough, and that you yeah. All right, now we're entering the how I work rapid fire question series. Okay. Uh, if you heard the podcast, you already know. Well, yes. actually, I started doing this uh, not an old podcast but in the, in the latest ones um, and basically it's a snapshot of how you work mm -hmm. quick quick answers uh, what's your morning routine like I get up and I do asana or the the poses followed by breathing exercise pranayama followed by meditation followed by chanting and prayers wow fantastic uh, one word that best describes how you work how I work yeah from the heart fantastic <laughs> current computer or laptop hmm? current computer laptop oh my yeah i have a, a pretty old laptop that's now seven years old <laughs> so <laughs> current mobile device uh, an iphone i don't even remember what the model is that's you can see <laughs> that's fantastic yeah you know what I, I didn't even know the model of mine uh apps software tools you can't live without uh 1320 sync which is the 13 moon calendar which is a mayan calendar that mm -hmm. so it's a it's a it's a calendar that is about lin not non-linear time so it connects you to the nature so i think it gets me out of this linear time time is money i have to run uh -huh. kind of mode into more like time is art uh, mm. mode so it keeps me calm no matter what even when i'm running late I'm gonna look into that. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. What every that's why I love these questions. <laughs> what everyday thing are you better at than everyone else? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> You're always welcome to pass. Oh, why am I better than anyone? I, I don't. I tend not to compare. I think it's walking in the room and and feeling the energy and just giving people what they need hmm. based on the energy that I read. That's what my wife told me that you're really good at. So <laughs> <laughs> what's a, your workspace setup like? And I guess in this case, uh, Liz, when you're building your programs. <laughs> when I'm building my programs. Your teacher training programs. Uh, it's my it's my living room where I have my, my altar, my yoga mat, my uh, meditation cushion. So uh -huh. I can first do those things so I can get inspired and clear my mind. Mm -hmm. And then... I just sit on the floor and you know, on the coffee table and I write and I have my laptop there because I can go back and forth between doing things with my body and then going back to the computer. Hmm. All right. That's lovely. Hey, what's your best time saving life hack? <laughs> <laughs> life saving? Or like, yeah, time saving. Time saving. Time saving. Time saving is really meditation because when you meditate, somehow time slows down. Wow, I, that's probably my favorite answer for that question so far. <laughs> what's, uh, what's your favorite to-do list manager or tool? Tool? Doesn't have to be technology. I got different answers on this one. Oh, but... wow. What is my favorite tool? To-do. To-do. To-do list. To-do list. Yes. Do you have a to-do list? I do have a to-do list. It's very short because I don't like lists because mm -hmm. that kind of makes me go into... Gregorian calendar mode mm -hmm. and so what I have is a you know I have my reminders like for teaching classes and like your courses iPhone? like on my iPhone mm -hmm. and that's what I use and then I try not to right. kind of 
go like, what's my next thing? You know, it just, it reminds me so I can just be in the moment. Got it. And what do you listen to? And I guess going back to you preparing your program, what do you listen to while at work, if any? I listen to so many different things. I listen to a lot of yogic chants uh-huh. uh, because they're very soothing and really get me in the right frame of mind. Uh, there's also a Seattle band right now, uh, Yaima, that mm-hmm. is really good. And I, mm-hmm. I like their music. I like Bob Murray and actually going to their concert on nice. uh, Tuesday. And so, yeah. All right. And then what are you currently reading? What am I... Or listening to? Well, I am currently... Reading the Yoga Sutras, but mm-hmm. the second chapter of the Yoga Sutras mm-hmm. um, called Sadhana Pada, mm-hmm. which was translated by my teacher, Pandiji. So, oh, wow. Yes. That's an interesting resource. I'm probably going to look into that. And by the way, for those listening, I'm going to be putting a whole bunch of these resources in the show notes so that they can access uh, these if they're interested. And Um, what your sleep routine looks like? Um, I do prayers in the Himalayan Institute tradition, in the tradition of the Himalayan masters before, mm-hmm. you know, which is all in Sanskrit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do the, my evening prayers mm-hmm. and meditation. If I feel that I'm restless, I will do yoga nidra mm-hmm. uh, for relaxation. But otherwise, I try to like have, you know, very low light and kind of connect to my altar before I go to bed and mm-hmm. no, I mean, I don't even have a TV, but no computer and, you know, nothing you like nothing that. In your I don't, yeah, nothing in my bedroom and just to really start to calm down. You have an altar you said in your bedroom. I have an altar in the living room where I go and I pray and then I go in the, in the, in my bedroom where I could do yoga and you drive. I, mm-hmm. if I do it, I don't do it every night, but I, I did forever for every night. Mm-hmm. So when, I'm not feeling calm enough just to unwind before bed. So I try to just do these meditative practices. Or if I listen to music, it would be more like sound healing kind of music. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I love Tom Canyon, for example. Um, When you mention prayers, you know, I start connecting. Is this some sort of religion? No. Hmm. They're not They're not prayers, like religious prayers. They're spiritual chants. Mm-hmm. Um And basically, you know, they're really about working on yourself. <laughs> Are you religious? I am not religious. I'm very spiritual, though, mm-hmm. which is not the same thing. Interesting. What? 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 But you're, you wouldn't say you're not atheist. No. Got it. So you still believe in the Creator or God? Yes, or I something. believe in the Creator, the Source. Yes. Got it. Um, best advice you've ever received. Um, follow your passion. I know it sounds cliche, but it's true. All right. <laughs> okay. Um, before, I have one more question uh, to end the episode. And before we go there, uh, if somebody wants to learn more about you, what's the best way to find to find you online? And I'll include those in the show notes also. Um, well, through the Spirit Power Yoga website, mm-hmm. um, because that's where I'm teaching and all of my workshops mm-hmm. and my trainings are there i do their 500 hour teacher training as well and i'm also on the faculty of the 200 hour teacher training mm-hmm. um what's the difference on, between the 200 hour and the 500 hour the 200 hour is the first one that you do the first 200 hours to become a teacher and then if you want to continue your education then there's an additional 300 hours to Got make it. it 500 and those are modules that we offer at spira that are more specialized. So say one module is going to be just Ayurveda, one module is going to be Tantra, one module could be advanced sequencing and so on. It's like a BA and a master's basically. Yeah. Okay. Okay, this question uh, is called The Three Truths. It's, uh, I learned about it from one of my favorite podcasts and I love listening to the answers and I'm very curious about what you have to say. Here it goes. You can take your time. Okay. <laughs> If today was your last day on earth and everything you've created was all to disappear all your programs all your classes and experiences that people had with you but you could leave your loved ones and the world behind with three truths about life what would those be learn to forgive yourself and others 
Mm-hmm. Um, practice unconditional love. Mm-hmm. And you are a being of light. Karina, thank you so much. Thank you. And that was my interview with Karina Terra. A couple of quick announcements before you leave. For reference, you can access these episode's notes alongside other resources at bit.ly slash BTS EP017. Again, that's bit.ly slash BTS EP017. Finally, if you enjoy listening to this interview, the best way to support me and this podcast is by leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you for tuning in. And remember to live a life that moves you.